Everyone has an interesting story to tell. This is where I share some of those stories. Welcome to the Interested Man Podcast with me, your host, Matt Green. I believe everyone is interesting, but we can't be interested in everyone. My guest on this episode is sitting right beside me. She is an author, funeral celebrant, and storyteller. She is a beaming beauty of light with a presence that says, tell me where you've come from and where you're headed. Your words are safe with me. She loves to hear life stories. And today I'm here giving her the space to share hers. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you, Matt. That was a beautiful introduction. You're welcome. In getting to know you recently, I feel like one word really stands out and uh, I wonder what your thoughts are. And that is curious. Tell me about curiosity. Yeah, I am a bit of a curious beast. Mm. I do like to ask questions, not in terms of the, the tangible aspects of a person, you know, you know about what, what do you do or where do you live or whatever. I often find myself asking somebody, uh, tap into what their ethos is, I suppose. You know, I, I think back to about two years ago now, we went to a 70th birthday. And this man was quite accomplished in his financial career. And all of the speeches focused around that. But at the end of the speeches, I thought, what does he stand for, though? What's important to him? What's his community give back? What's his legacy he's left throughout his career? Or what legacy will he leave when he leaves this earth? It's, it's important to, that, we, that we have the, the aesthetics of a person rather than their achievements. You can read that on LinkedIn or mm. on someone's resume. But, you know, what are a person's values, I suppose? Um, and what makes me curious? The emotional context of their life. Like where where do you think the curiosity began? I remember at about the age of 12 pestering my grandmother with a notepad and pen in my hand for family history. I've since done a lot of family history research and uncovered some little stories and now I know why she was ushering me away. Uh You know but I've always been interested and and mum and dad would often have friends over for a card night as you did in the 70s. I remember my auntie saying that I was always hovering around the table listening to adult conversation and uh, I was the middle of three children but I think I was mum's wingman I, okay. you know a bit around the house for responsibility and so forth so yeah and, and she says now you have an amazing memory of different different people or different things that happened when we were a child only because I suppose I was being a sticky nose. How do you think that's played into like later in life? You know, I want to use it as a segue, I guess, because it makes a lot of sense. The curiosity and in writing the books that you've written about history and about the stories that people have from the war days. Is that right to say? Like the Mm. the right kind of context? Well, I remember I raised three boys and I've heard myself saying many a time, they, they might come home and comment on what somebody had done at school. I'd say to them, look beyond their behaviour and look at why they're behaving a certain way. You know, as we know, often fear is exercised as anger. Actually interested in what's behind a person and what's behind the way that they might behave or think or operate. The post-war generation in our grandparents, attitudes that they had in the context of the time were acceptable. Now, mm. you know, they wouldn't be acceptable. Um, but I was very curious about the World War II generation. It's, it's when psychologists were learning about post-traumatic stress disorder and domestic violence goes back to that era. 
lack of emotional knowledge in parenting. So I was very curious based on a, a previous book that I had done and I was hearing about women in World War II, the stories that they had, their little anecdotes, perhaps not enough that would warrant their own book, but an anecdote that unless captured would be lost. So about eight years ago, I set out to interview women about World War II, but first I had to capture my interviewees. So I designed a double page questionnaire, distributed around Australia through Legacy and CWA Regional Branch Network, and had no idea what might happen. Three replies, 3,000 replies, I ended up with 300. It was the information about what women had done in a voluntary or a paid work effort during World War II and the impact that World War II had made on their life. I then had to telephone or visit in person. I, I drove the east coast of Australia visiting a lot of them along the way over a period wow. of about eight days. And they loved to visit. And I would ask lots of questions. But it wasn't until, like when I was in their lounge room, firstly I had to make them feel comfortable. I was a mm -hmm. complete stranger asking about a very personal time. And some women would say to me, it was the best time of my life. I'm not sure if I should say that. You know, some of them would talk to me about the love that got away and even be in tears, mm. thinking about a man that they, they loved 70 years ago. Uh, and I think they were bolder the way that they spoke because, you know, as one woman said, when I asked her, she was telling me about an affair she had had with an, with an officer. And I said, are you happy for this to go into the book? And she said... You know, you know, because I said your grandchildren might read this book, and she said, "Look, I'm 90. I couldn't give a stuff." You know, you know, they were more relaxed because they knew this was the last chance to have this story captured, and it was five or six years of their life that was very different to the rest mm. of their life, particularly in the area of gender roles, responsibilities, and and dynamics. It was very liberating mm. for some women, and you know, one woman told me about her and her children left on a farm and having to fight a bushfire because the men folk were away. Uh, it, you know, it was tough going. She told me about shooting a crow on the fly. She was pretty ha happy about, mm. about those efforts. Yeah, so it was um, collecting stories from women who were in the Air Force, the Army and the Navy, on the land, their own land or in the land army. Women who had been overseas but come to live in Australia. So they gave me an overseas perspective, you know, the bombings in London or, you know, a Japanese war bride who came here. Women who were at home, women who were taking on male roles in, in factories or teaching. Um, women who'd been children observing mm. this adult world that had gone a bit crazy. So it, it was a fascinating experience. The main thing was that they felt comfortable with me. And I think that was my country town upbringing, my mm. ability to be able to talk with people in a very natural way, my interest in research. I had to read the context of World War II so I could understand, and I didn't come from a history background, um, so I had to read the context of World War II so I could see where their stories did fit. And probably at the end of all the interviews, I had about 12 statements that I couldn't check. As in couldn't confirm? Or... Yeah, couldn't confirm. Right. and do I put this in? Did right. this really happen? You know, so I did um, have access to a, a war historian and his, his mother was one of the interviewees. He answered the 12 questions for me. He, he confirmed that oh, I could right. put it in. You know, one lady had said my, my brother was beheaded on the island of Arbonne. So I'm thinking, can I put that in? Because that's mm. a pretty... Bold statement. Yeah. Mm. Yes, 
I could put that in. Okay. Yeah, so it was really interesting. And then um, I went around to a whole lot of Probus groups and promoted the book. And, and it was interesting, you know, to even see grown men cry because they were talking about their mum during mm-hmm. the war. They, you know, they'd realise what mum had endured. Yeah, really life-changing experience. Yeah, I can't begin to imagine the experiences and I guess the very different experience you had in each household. Mm. And how do you go about turning 300 stories into a book? Well, it's interesting you say that because I was, um, you know, tiptoeing in sort of uncharted territory. I had written a book before, but I had self-published that to get my foot in the door. So I was, one, moving into a whole new industry as well, the publishing industry. And I collected the stories and I wrote them all separately. And I presented them to a publisher who kindly gave me some really useful but frank feedback. And she said, you don't have a book, you have research here. So then she said, you need to link it. So I, I imagined myself having to be David Attenborough. There's a story about a giraffe, there's a story about a lion, but somehow he seamlessly threads those stories together. You watch a whole documentary, you don't even realize he's moved through 10 animals. Yeah, right. So I had to David Attenborough the book. Oh, I like that. Yes. <laughs> That's so great. I had to um, get the like stories together and then the unique aspects and quote the women. And it was very important to me that I was using their words. Mm-hmm their language and not the facts and the figures only but the essence of the person was very important to me and so it's a real mixture of emotions you know and sometimes I would be typing away and I would be laughing to myself remembering the interview and sometimes I'd find myself crying because Mm. it was a really uh, emotive story many of them said to me I've never told anyone this you know one families don't ask or two you know they were bound to secrecy by the army for many decades so there's a whole lot of reasons women hadn't told their story. So I'm very proud that I captured their stories. I would assume most of those women have passed away by now. Mm. What year was this that you did that? Um, it was about 2013. And what's the title of that book? Between the Dances. Because unexpectedly, women kept talking about the dances that they went to and I had to keep bringing them back to talk about their war effort. And then I thought, well, the the common thread of nearly every story was the dancers, you know, Mm. putting on some bright red lippy and cheering up the boys. It was almost an obligation that they had when the boys were on leave. That was the focus of most of my interviews. With that book in particular, like what's your biggest takeaway or memory? Is this one particular thing that stands Um, out? There was one woman who had been interned by the Japanese. She had been captured in Shanghai and was liberated by the Americans before the war finished. She recuperated in Sydney and she went back into Asia and uh, worked behind the lines feeding the Burmese army, still doing her bit after what she had been through. Mm. You know, and I didn't ask her about the gruelling bits, you know. Many of the women alluded to violence, you know, particularly after the war when their husbands came home. My my husband was difficult to live with. I put up with a lot. I didn't pry unless they wanted to tell me that you could could pick up what they meant. Yeah, but just to see such resilience in this woman that she had done that throughout the war, still used the time she could to help others. Yeah, you stole the word right out of my mouth. I was about to say that sounds like the epitome of the word resilient. Mm. And and to still be positive. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing was to see the difference in health of these 300 women, all in their 80s and 90s. Those who had looked after themselves at a younger age, those who had maintained good posture, and those who hadn't smoked or drank Mm. and kept themselves active and trim. 
it was a real wake up to say, oh, if you want to be still walking or doing water aerobics in your 80s, you can be, but it matters what you do when you're 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50. So they were giving you some life advice on the way as well? <laughs> they were offering you some tips and tricks? Uh, not, not directly, but it was just my observation. Right. Yeah. You know, wanting to stay physically, mentally young. Mm. You can. You can. Depends on your journey. Have you continued writing books? What's, what's the next step for you? Yes, I did another one about a woman who was the first woman to train a Melbourne Cup winner. Later this year, I have a children's picture book coming out. Oh, fabulous. With, yes, with um, it's just being illustrated at the moment. So I'll have to tell you about that next year. It's co-authored uh, with an Indigenous author. Okay. So going into a whole new space again, the Indigenous space, about another a life issue that faces many children. Okay. You've written books. Um, it's been quite a journey. Now I know the next journey you're on. How, how do you link the two? Do you? Yes, I do. I've, I've just finished the required qualification to be a celebrant. And I have a choice to be wedding and or funeral. And I'm choosing just funerals. Once again, a life story. And the reason this came about is that my third and final son finishes his secondary schooling this year. And I figure for the first time in nearly 32 years, I'm free of parenting responsibilities. Not, not that I'm naive to think that they stop just because my youngest turns 18. My oldest is 31. So I have been responsible for a child since I was 20. I think that's a fairly long stint, <laughs> having, <laughs> having had one and then two years, 10 years later having two more. So I thought next year, 2023, I feel like I'm free. I, I do think I've almost had one foot out the door already. But I'm, I'm free to do what I want. I don't have to work around children anymore. I don't have to work around school, school holidays. And I have two grandchildren and my granddaughter starts school next year. And I thought, what would I like to do? Not what do I have to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked as a PR freelancer for a couple of decades, just for parental uh, flexibility. So I thought, okay, what are my skills? What was of my work career? I've worked in HR and PR consultancy and PR freelancing. What project did I enjoy the most? And it comes back to the book we've just talked about, Between the Dancers and Interviewing the World War II Women. My skills there are the interviewing, making people feel comfortable, as you are, researching historical context, underpinning the stories and the anecdotes, writing, and I did have a very good editor all the way through, and presenting, marketing, publicity, event coordination, where do those skills sit? And during COVID, I was asked to speak at two funerals, to recite a poem. Then I attended a funeral by a really dynamic young male celebrant. And I thought, this whole sphere is changing. You know, the dowdy old aunt celebrant, the funeral home and so forth. It's, it's all evolving. It's a celebration of life story and, it's, and it can be so tailored these days. So I've just completed, Matt, a course in celebrancy, but I'm only going to do the funeral side of things because I like the life story. And sometimes, you know, over the years I've been to funerals for people I may not necessarily know that well, but you're there to support someone or be Mm -hmm. polite or to be courteous. And I always enjoy the eulogy. I always enjoy what's behind that person and not, as I said before, not necessarily just their achievements. You know, people are very modest. What's being behind them as a person explains them as the person that we might have met. Uh, But along the way, they might be a little bit humble. 
and, uh, and really achieve, achieve something wonderful. Because you don't know these people as a celebrant, so is the process similar to writing the book? Do you interview family members? Do you speak to whoever is involved in this person's life who's passed away to be able to then do the ceremony? Yes. Yeah. And I suppose going back to the book, there was some story contributions uh, done by niece, daughter um, right. or son uh, because mum or auntie had passed away or grandma had passed away. Uh, but in the in a funeral situation, I believe the funeral home is the first point of contact, and they will you know contact a celebrant. They might have a, a handful that they have a portfolio mm-hmm. of celebrants, and they'll say you know for this family, I think this this celebrant um, would be appropriate. So then um, I go to the home and I interview the family members or you okay. know the key person, you know at a really acute stage of grief, mm-hmm. uh, when things are all a bit confusing, uh, particularly if it's tragic or a sudden death. And find out the essence of the person, the facts, um, what would they like mentioned, what would they like acknowledged, and bring that bring that person to life for those people who may not have known them for their whole journey. Um, you know, people come into your life, in and out of your life, and they might mm-hmm. know one era, the career era, or the grandparent era, or the school era, but to um, highlight or also, you know, help that the whole life blossom a little bit. Yeah, wow, I hadn't even. I guess in a funeral sense, I've never realised or never paid attention that they're actually not they're they're doing they're performing a role. Yes. So being a celebrant, I've known obviously with weddings, but didn't understand that concept that they exist in the funeral world. Although it makes does make sense. And I've had some good advice from experienced celebrants because you know as I'm just stepping into this space about you know how do you control your own emotions mm. you know because we are only human to be confronted particularly by a young person's death or a tragic death and it has some really good advice that as a celebrant you're an outsider as mm. you say and you don't really have the right to grieve and it's not your grief and you are there to support people who are grieving and another person a funeral director said to me imagine there's grieving people in a trench they're having trouble getting out of that trench and if you jump in the trench with them you can't help mm-hmm. but you have to stay out of the trench to give them a hand to help them help them get out and so therefore you have to remove yourself and a few other little tips you know one celebrant said to me she's she plants her feet hard on the ground if she's feeling emotion and right. this funeral director said to me he pinches the skin between his thumb and his um index finger yep. that that, that uh, yep. bit of webbing in between he pinches that to remind himself yeah. where he is and what yeah. his role is and mm. and take the distraction away yeah right the trench one is so descriptive that it's so easy to understand visually from the minute you said it interesting that it links mm. into the war yes. in your books <laughs> i know that's a that's not meant to kind of but have happened but uh, that's a nice connection i always like to ask my guests this question but i'm actually going to split it up because of a common answer that I get each time. Yes. And the way I'm going to split it up is you have three boys in your life, or four, including your husband. Yes. (laughs) What do you see as the biggest achievement in that part of your life? That I've been able to raise my sons to flourish as individuals and that they've been raised in different scenarios. My eldest is 31 and I was a single mum for about 10 years. And I was proud that I could work full time, but we returned home from work 
and his emotional needs were important. We would find time to talk and he was resilient in terms of he never complained. This was his situation. He'd bounce between mum and dad's house and he never complained. And he's um, a, a tolerant, selfless um, person now. And then I met my husband, had two more, and I suppose I was a stay-at-home mum, so these boys have been a little more shrouded. And I've really focused on them developing a sense of kindness and compassion for others. We, from 2017 to 2021, hosted an Indigenous student, a young man in our home, so he could complete secondary schooling. And he comes from a remote Indigenous community southwest of Daly River. And there was an inaugural program coming through the school where 20 of these Indigenous students were brought to Melbourne to do a year seven of intense numeracy literacy and then transition to a partner school and stay with a host family or a boarding house. And at the time, my husband and I were becoming accredited foster parents when this, okay. when this opportunity came to the school. And so we did dabble in both for about five years. We had this Indigenous student come and stay with us during the school terms, return home to his community. So he went from fast-paced Melbourne crowded trains, mm. timetable move, next classroom, and remote community, hunting turtles and wild goose and swimming in the billabong. Uh, so he really walked in two worlds and it was a real eye-opener for our mm. family and you know because I went to school in the 80s and all I did was colour in a boomerang and it was pretty I have pretty limited knowledge mm. of First Nations people so this has really opened my eyes up and with and for my boys as well you know they had to share their parents and, and share my energy share my time with an extra person in the home for five years and they did it very graciously it was it was different for us all I remember the first autumn he stayed with us when the air was starting to get cold at night mm. and one of my boys came in I don't think he knew how to cope and he said to me mum he's wearing my moccasins <laughs> because in an Aboriginal community mm. if something's in the house it's everybody's right um you know and we didn't and plus we didn't feel it was cold yet mm. he felt it was cold so seeing things from another person's point of view and having the foster children in the house and at times, you know, it may not have been convenient. And and I remember one of my boys saying to me once, almost in tears, because it was just overwhelming for him. Why can't these parents look after their own kids? Yeah. Why do we have to? And we only did respite care. We didn't do long term. It was, you know, like an emergency in the middle of the night or um, a foster carer needed a weekend off. Okay. So sort of respite care for foster carers. But I thought it was important um, you know, there was one day one of my boys was almost having a tantrum that, that we were out of chocolate meat ice cream in the freezer. Like, that was a big deal in his life. Mm. Um, that he was living not an affluent life, but a comfortable life. Um, and that the lack of mint ice cream was really nothing to be a bit narky about. You know, that some kids come home and they don't even know if mum and dad have run out. Mm. That was somewhere I challenged myself. My grandfather had been a foster child and someone obviously had been there for him because he was a joyful, positive, dynamic um, man who created a great sense of family with his five children. A foster mother had come into his life and made a significant difference mm. as, as to where that could have gone. So that was really important for, for me, um, for my boys to see, to think beyond themselves uh, we were living in Brisbane for three years and there was one Christmas we were orphans 
So I said, we're not just going to lay about the pool. We're going to go and work at a soup kitchen for Christmas Day. For them to realise that some people spend Christmas Day, you know, as as rough sleepers and it's no different to any other day. So I think it's important as you're Mm. raising children to for them to see other people's points of view, to, to build a sense of empathy. On behalf of everyone, thank you for that. That's beautiful. The, the reason I split the question up is, I guess I want to hear from you, like what is your biggest achievement to date aside from that beautiful family aspect you just explained? My biggest achievement to date, probably as uh, from a work point of view, would be my ability to evolve I suppose when I'm needed to evolve I left uni pregnant thinking that I was about to head to Queensland and work at a health resort no that wasn't going to happen I didn't have any family support up there Mm. and so forth and then I married thinking that that was going to be forever no that wasn't going to be forever so at 23 I was getting divorced and some people aren't even married by 23 Mm. and I think I've constantly had to evolve and as we were chatting offline before you can only worry about what you can control. I graduated from uni, as I said, pregnant, but it was in the middle of the recession, so there was no work anyway. Okay, so let's do life's goals in a bit of a different order. I I found myself in HR, I found myself in PR. Um, I have evolved from living on a 1200 acre property with peace and tranquility and loving my own time. And then we moved to inner city Brunswick when I was about 15 and a half. And I think it's my ability to adapt and, and to be a bit ad hoc about, uh, I like to be organized, but I also like to be quite ad hoc. You know, the book Between the Dancers came about just by chance, you know, mm. so I'll just do that. And by chance, I'm sitting at a funeral thinking, this is a really beautiful service. I'd like to be a funeral celebrant. But I don't often just talk about doing things. I'd be bold and make the time to start a process and to see things through, such as my family tree research. Um, you know, now uh, recently I've, I've given out charts to all different family lines from about 10 years of research that's finally come to fruition. When you say what's your greatest achievement, I don't think it's a tangible thing. I look back and I, I suppose I see some friends that I might have graduated from school with and they had a defined occupation or a defined expertise and whether that be a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or it's it's defined. So it's a career path that builds. And I see women my age and I think, oh, she's really established in her career because it's been one fluid career path. Mm. And I think oh, I've done bits and pieces. I'm sort of good at lots of things but not great at anything. But maybe that doesn't matter. It's all a bit scattergun, I suppose. Yeah. It's important to realise um, where people have come from and, and what's come along their journey before we automatically judge like we do. Well, beautiful. Thank you for finishing on that note and thank you for joining me on this episode. Okay. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, you've had some great thought-provoking questions. Excellent. Thank you to my guest today on the Interested Man podcast. I love listening to people sharing their story. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe wherever you like to hear podcasts and share it with people you think will enjoy this. Until next time, stay interested in others.